Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. This podcast is focused on achieving targeted delivery of gene editing therapies from the 2023 POD Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. For more information on the POD conference, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit podconference.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Okay, so let's get started. Thank you to the organizers, and it gives me great pleasure to be moderating this very exciting panel. I'm Sanya, and I'm based in Nova Nordisk, Lexington, and I head a department called Non-Viral Delivery. And with me are a panel of experts who also share similar skills and, and experience, so I'll hand over to them one by one to give a brief intro, starting on my left. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Sean Davis. I'm the CEO of Liberate Bio. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Manmohan Singh. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Beam Therapeutics. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Liping Zhou. I'm a Senior Director at AstraZeneca, heading the Advanced Drug Delivery Team for Boston. Hi, I'm Sean Bedingfield. I'm an advisor at Lilly. Thank you, everybody. And today, what we're going to do is share some of our perspectives on the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead of us when it comes to targeted delivery and, and also step up from where you've been hearing a lot of the oligo and message RNA applications into something like genome editing. So we have a great panel here who can share those perspectives. And I'm going to start with a question. Maybe we start with Sean uh, at my left, because we have two Seans here. Um, how do you see the promise and potential of genome editing with non-viral delivery compared to all the other approaches that could open up this space? Well, anyone that's been to Pod and heard me speak knows that I like, like to think positively about the direction of things and uh, hopefully looking far enough out there. It's really hard to underestimate the potential of the space. I mean, you look at the progress over the past 30 years, and it's been a little slow picking up pace because of some challenges, particularly with, you know, frankly, safety concerns with other vehicles like viral vectors. Uh, but in the last five years, I would argue it borders on miraculous, right? I mean, going beyond, and we'll just talk about genetic medicines as a whole, millions of lives saved in the first year of introduction for mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. You have sight being returned to the blind with Luxerna in a single dose. And when you think about the monogenic diseases, you have, depending on how you want to count it, five or 6,000 monogenic diseases, which are individually rare, but accumulate into a very large population and impact probably one in three people in this room, whether it's somebody in your family, uh, someone in your uh, work or otherwise. Almost 90% of those may be able to be addressed with prime editing. So if you can solve these problems, you're not addressing an indication and a patient population, you may be changing the course of medicine. You may be treating 4,500 diseases. So, I mean, I don't know what else people are working on that has a potential bigger impact. So that's how I think about it. That's excellent, Sean. Does anyone else want to have their view on this? Just want to add to what Sean just said. I absolutely feel the technologies that we have in front of us that enable gene editing are so exciting, and the potential of these platforms are immense, and we're literally just scratching the, the surface of the potential of these technologies in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, just to add one more thing, I definitely have seen the speed in this field picked up in the past few years, right? You know, there are so many people dedicating their uh, uh, brain into this uh, 
development uh, for the next generation treatment the, ben uh, the patients can benefit from. Definitely, um, this field has a very bright future. And you know, I think the people, I think if you'd asked people five years ago, there was a lot more of this general mentality that you should, you know, if, if something's hard, you should give up. And I think, especially in nanomedicine and in non-viral delivery, there's been a lot more, well, how could we fix that? And people are really trying some, some creative approaches now. Glad that changed, otherwise where would we be today? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, you know, there have been, there's been a lot of progress, but I, I feel like there's still quite a few bumps in the road, right? You still get very real questions about, will it ever be anything other than a niche indication because of cost and safety concerns? And, uh, you know, if we're really being honest about the commercial success of some of the things that have been launched, they haven't really lived up to the potential that people were hoping for. So I, I think as, as uh, excited as I am for the future, I think there's still plenty of bumps on the road that we're going to have to work our way through. But the once and done definitely has a great promise. Uh, maybe I can move on now to get a bit into the depth of this. So, so the question to Manu would be, um, from the non-viral delivery perspective and the success we see with the mRNA and the vaccines, what else do you think needs to be actively built into these systems so that they can cater to the genome editing therapies? Great question, Sani. I mean, when you look at the non-viral delivery um, you know, landscape, so to speak, right, the first-generation LNPs, the lipid nanoparticles that enabled uh, delivery of siRNA to the liver that Alinelam pioneered, and more recently, the COVID, success of the COVID vaccines, right? I mean, these were huge, huge wins for sure, right? These platforms, these technologies, the lipid nanoparticles that enable siRNA and mRNA vaccines will need to evolve significantly to make them more innovative and more specific and more targeted for unlocking the full potential of multiple gene editing technologies, right? So when you look at, for example, the current version of the LNPs, there's a lot of innovation that's happening in the non-viral delivery platform that's likely to add more specificity, whether that specificity is to the cell type or to a tissue, and how do you bring that about? That's going to be likely brought about by adding more you know, ligands to the surface or degrading the LNPs with multiple you know, peptides or small molecules, antibodies, that will give you that ability to control the biodistribution of these molecules in vivo, control the half-life and the persistence of the cargo in vivo. But they will also bring complexity in manufacturing of these non-violent you know, LNPs for, for the future, right? So the current LNP is easy to manufacture. You can scale them up, four components. We have the process locked in. But the moment you start adding tropo, you know, higher tropism, higher specificity by adding multiple components, the CMC part of these delivery systems will also become complex. But I can tell you for, for sure, because Beam is working very heavily on extrahepatic delivery, we are looking at ways to deliver the cargo that unlocks the gene editing technology beyond the liver, right? So liver, I think, is the low-hanging fruit, right? We know anything you give through the IV route hits the liver, hepatocytes pick up those LNPs, and you have your delivery of those uh, mRNA cargo. But if you want to detarget the liver, how do you detarget the liver when you know LNPs will hit the liver? And how do you reduce the distribution into the spleen and maybe to the other tissues as well? And how do you enhance specificity and distribution into cells, whether they are T cells, whether they are stem cells, to really enable the delivery of the base editing cargo, whether that's base editor, prime editor, a nucleus editor? So that innovation is happening. It's still happening at a slow pace. I see 
the, the drive to move that innovation faster happening in the next several years. Would you like to add to any of that, Liping, in terms of what else do we need to build into these systems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, totally agree. Definitely, you know, uh, as I said, we have progressed quite a lot in the past few years, but there are still quite a lot of challenges. I think the key thing is that, you know, we need to understand why why our nanoparticles perform in a certain way in order to find out how. Um, and I still think that there are quite a lot of things that you know, we need to do in order to gain this in-depth understanding about why. And then we can uh, come up with the different strategies uh, so that we can come up with uh, ideas, solutions to answer this how question. So Manu and Liping, you've touched on a lot about specificity and CMC challenges, but, and I know there's another track about extrahepatic delivery as well. So, but if we had to come back into the genome editing and, and the purpose that it solves is, is really complex. So maybe for Liping and Sean, what do you see as the approaches that hold real promise when it comes to targeted delivery and extrahepatic targeted delivery? Maybe I can get start with this one. So. Uh, my experience is that like people definitely are very creative. There are a number of things uh, we are working on in order to achieve this targeted delivery so that we can you know improve the specificity of our LMP or other you know delivery systems will doubt out the safety concerns as much as we can. For example, you know, for LNPs, uh, for, uh, you know, gene delivery, for uh, targeted tissues, uh, there are multiple ways people have been working on. Uh, we can either change the formulation or, you know, um, modify the LNP using, for example, antibodies to achieve this targeted delivery. Uh, we can also add the ligands to our uh, nanoparticles with this ligand receptor mechanism, we can you know, try our best to get the nanoparticles to where uh, we want them to be. So uh, those are the three you know, uh, main approaches uh, I have seen people are working on. For example, yesterday you know, we heard this presentation from Recode with the SOAR technology. Uh, that's uh, a way to modify the LNP formulation to achieve the target delivery. Uh, they have demonstrated uh, very good improvement in uh, the uh, nanoparticle delivered to the lung uh, in addition to liver. Uh, I think they are also working on CNS. The other approach uh, people are using is to use the machine learning uh, you know, AI technologies. Annette chaired a section yesterday focusing on some of you know, the uh, technologies and you know, achievements we have seen in that space. Um, and yesterday, uh, I think it was Sanda who also talked about you know, a programming medicine uh, that also helps the uh, you know, formulation optimization. At uh, AZ, uh, we developed our own high throughput screening technology uh, for uh, you know, lipid nanoparticle evaluation. And with that technology, we uh, combined with uh, machine learning as well as artificial intelligence. And we use that platform to help us to select LMPs that can be used. Uh, to you know, uh, achieve specific target delivery. So there are definitely a lot of things people are working on in this space, and I'm sure in the future we'll see a lot of uh, new improvements as well. Thank 
flipping, Sean? Yeah, I think, I think as a field, we, we haven't really established what is the full laundry list of the design constraints that we have to navigate. So as we, you know, we're, we're, we're learning about active targeting with ligand decoration, compositional, passive targeting approaches, um, and, you know, these all solve different problems. You know, active, you know, ligand-based targeting will, will open the right door only if you're in the right neighborhood, right? And so, you know, you, these compositional uh, approaches make a difference. There's also differences by, you know, people are starting to be willing to compromise on things like, you know, taking on less convenient routes of administration. So now we, you know, we see intrathecal being done by Al Nylum. We see other groups trying some pretty exotic means to get it into the right neighborhood so that they can have these things work out. And so I think, you know, it's worth taking those shortcuts in development in the short run just to see, you know, what is the floor of efficacy? What can we really achieve? And then how can we maximize the therapeutic window and ease the burden of care from there? That's Sorry, if I can point. just add to Sean's comment. Absolutely. I mean, the way I look at it is that uh, to really enhance um, some of the attributes of the LNP is really understanding the structure-activity relationship, whether that's the net charge or the choice of the peg or the choice of the sterol or, or for example, just the size of the LNPs themselves, right? There's so much of unknown out there on the LNP side where people have gone through a high-throughput screening, landed on an LNP that works, and gone full steam ahead with that without really understanding what causes that enhancement and potency and how can you build that into subsequent LNP formulation. So the mechanistic side of that biodistribution, I think, there needs to be investigated heavily as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys hit on many important points. I particularly like the point about the use of artificial intelligence to help manage some of the complexity. I mean, I know when we were talking about this before, you think about the computation, excuse me, the combinatorial complexity of just the chemistry of the lipids themselves and then the particle size and the morphology and then the route of administration, all of these things, and then the cargo, of course, influences this, and all of this creates just a really massive challenge to rationally design, even if you think you know what receptor you're going after. And in many cases, if we're honest, we don't know exactly what receptor we should be going after in different cell types. So, you know, I was really gratified to see some of the talks and the furthering of the computational science integration into our work. And uh, I thought the example from Voyager this morning was really compelling in that they, they kind of backed into the answer around a receptor-mediated uptake and a potential ligand by first understanding what was actually working. And, you know, maybe I'm too much of an empiricist, but I like, I like to build on success. I like to have things that work, and then it motivates me to do more work instead of just working away for years and never seeing any success. So uh, I'm excited about this application, and, you know, I think the route of administration is a big f function of this, too. Uh, I've spent most of my life poking myself or other people with needles, and so I, I know a lot of different ways to do that, but even now I'm discovering how much more amenable people are. I was looking at the kidney. I didn't know there were nine different injection routes just yeah. to the kidney. Right. So I think when, when you start moving into the space of editing, and it's not something I'm going to inject every week, it's potentially a one and done, yeah. then people are much more amenable to a more invasive process. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's really important is that route of administration, at least even in the early clinical trials, what can you learn from something where the delivery barrier may not be high, but you get other insights and then try to make it more on the patient-centric and compliance as well is, is a short-term approach. Um, but something also on that theme that we heard in, in a few talks yesterday and today is detargeting the liver 
extrahepatic target distribution. So from an LNP perspective, what do you feel is more realistic to expect in this space and, and with or without ligands even? Anybody? I mean, I can take a stab and I'm sure others will join in as well. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, LNP's uh, detargeting liver is not an easy ask. You know, it's a lipid. Obviously, it's going to hit the liver. The question is, can you reduce the amount of LNP's that end up taken up by hepatocytes or, or cofort cells or other cell types with the liver, right? And how do you preferentially control the biodistribution by controlling one attribute of the LNP, whether it's size, for example, you know, a certain size might show your tendency to stay within that hepatocytes at a higher frequency. So when we say detargeting, we're just talking about reducing the frequency of uptake within the liver and then preferentially pushing more LNPs to other tissue types, whether that's, you know, um, you know spleen or other organs as well. I mean, I think this is going to be an interesting element of the targeting with ligands, right? Like, I guess I kind of wonder if you have, like, a center of gravity in the liver for wanting to take up, you know, once you form the APOE corona, you know where it's going. So do you have to start by stopping that process and have more of a neutral, long, half-life circulating particle and then attaching a ligand to allow it to have a chance to go to some of these other cell types? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and typically, we talk about like you know specific tissue delivery, specific organ delivery. But you know, we also need to think about like you know the cell that we need to deliver our LNP to. And this is not that well understood yet in terms of like you know how I can deliver our nanoparticles to specific cell types, right? You know, some of the cells that are uh, easily accessible by circulation may be relatively easier for us. Well, other cell types, if they are not that easy to get accessed by circulation, those will be even more challenging for us to tackle. I, uh, I going going back to the the AI screening approach. You know, I think there's there's a there's a wealth of um, you know data to be explored there, and helping you get to the point where you can start to understand those structure activity relationships. Um, but building that data set is very fragile, right? You have to you have to decide on some conditions that you can really control and keep consistent. And you know, that's it's a real investment in terms of resources. And then if you if you change your conditions, you know, you have to really change how you approach that analysis as well. So it's you know it's easy to throw yourself at, at something that's very exciting right now. I think it's hard to make sure that you deliver on it in a way that doesn't just burn money. Absolutely. And uh, just to add one more thing about that is that, you know, uh, in the screening uh, assays, we typically use the very genetic cell types, right? You know, however, uh, people still have this huge question in terms of in vitro to in vivo correlation. What type of cells are actually predictive, right? You know, so those are the things that actually require our formulation scientists to work very closely with the biochemists, for example, right, the biologists, in order to come up with the, you know, more predictive cell lines that we can use. Um, I remember people are saying that, you know, the primary cell lines are more predictive than, you know, the other type of cells. However, you know, primary cell lines are not that easy to build, especially for formulation scientists, right? You know, as non-biologists, I don't even know what cell lines to uh, really use. So it definitely requires a lot of collaboration, you know, um, between formulation scientists with scientists from all the uh, other uh, line functions. Just to add, just closing comment on that, I guess. So on the extrahepatic delivery side, what most researchers have observed is the, the lack of complete 
translation interspecies, right? Going from a mice to a rat to a monkey to a man, right? Presuming that if you observe something in a small animal model just from a, you know, whether extrahepatic delivered to stem cells, what have you, and then assuming that same translation will happen in an NHP model or a clinical setting, there's still a lot of gap in that understanding right now. This goes back a little bit to the panel yesterday. When I, when I think about using computational science to hopefully accelerate things, I mean, the only thing worse than going slow is going fast in the wrong direction. Yeah. And so, you know, understanding the quality of the data that's being generated, and that I think that really includes the model, right. and using that as the basis for your data generation before you write the first algorithm to learn anything about anything, you have to be confident in the biology. And that really, what really concerns me in the literature that you see some publications today is when they're essentially pulling all of the information from patents and papers, which is inherently biased because it was, they only publish the good stuff and the model has to learn from good and bad results. And then on top of it, it's almost exclusively in rodents, best case, and then it's all in the liver. So if you're, if you're trying to learn how to teach something about delivery to the lung, the spleen, anywhere else, it's pretty hard to learn if you only have rodent data in the liver. I think that's also something that, if I could add, is in that machine learning and, you know, predictive to say this LNP will go to this cell and tissue. You really need to start to build a correlation of the FISCHEM characterization and the properties and these attributes which go beyond the quality measures to actually key performance measures. And that could be a future where you can then really get rid of some of these in vitro, in vivo complexities. Um, Maybe I just want to change a bit and focus on something a few of you touched on, and that was the CMC learnings, right? So from the vaccines and all the emergency approvals then getting into, into the final, uh, what have we really learned, if you want to share from, from what you've read and worked on, as, as something that you would actively build into these LNPs, designing them even in early research and discovery? What, what has been that key takeaway learning from, from the vaccines so maybe I can CMC. take a stab, and I'm sure others will join. So one key learning that I got from the, the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna launch of the COVID vaccine was you don't, don't really have to scale up the LNP process. You can scale out the LNP process, meaning you can have smaller systems that make, let's say, you know, five-liter volume of LNP and then have 50 of these units really cranking out five-liter volume versus really trying to scale up the LNP production to 50 liters or 100 liters, right? The, the larger the volume that you're trying to control from a flow dynamics and, and control of the, the pumps, it gets more complicated. So scaling out versus scaling up is, is a good model. And then also when you apply that learning to gene editing technologies, wherever we go, as you know, most of the gene editing technologies are going after rare diseases where the patient population number is much smaller than a vaccine application, right? So even there, the application of scalability of these LNPs does not need to go higher than where the current landscape is, meaning that's a good learning that we don't really need to scale up much from where we already are. I mean, I, I think that scale up versus out question is a really interesting one. I think the other thing that really struck me, and this goes back to your point about fifth components and conjugation, is that simplicity wins. Right. You know, when it comes to actually commercializing products, the simpler, the better. And, you know, I started my career in microfluidics in grad school, and when I saw the microfluidic chips forming all these particles, I'm like, that's great, that's a really smart idea, I like these channels. And then when I heard you can just take a couple of HPLC pumps, put them into a T-junction, and get basically the same result, 
I was like, the, micro, the chemical engineer in me was like, great, glorified plumbing. I know how to do this. Uh, so I think it was a, a real lesson for everybody that you know, there's a time and a place for precise control, and then there's manufacturing where you still need precise control, but the boundaries may be opened up in order to achieve the scale that you need as long as the quality attributes are where you need them to be. So I think that was huge, and it frankly, I think reframed a lot of people's thinking about the scale that was possible. Mm and that this, this would never just be limited to tiny populations in the future. You know, for anyone that hasn't done the math on a billion doses of anything, that is a lot of production very quickly, and it's an amazing accomplishment for the industry as a well. whole. I think a lot of companies feel the pressure, especially small ones, to have all the answers to everything, and I don't think that's necessary and I think it's going to spread you pretty thin. So I think you know the core things that you can do in terms of CNC evaluation early on are you know understand the fate of the materials that are in that particle over a over a certain amount of time and in certain conditions. And really beyond that, um, you're going to want to find the right partners whether that's you know a contract um, help or a, or a, a partner that's licensing your tech to really push it from there to somewhere bigger. And how much? How many more CDMOs are available to do that work? For so you many today more. Than five years ago, Ohio alone, you can yeah. find like six of them, right? That's so that. yeah, maybe just to add uh, something uh, with a different flavor into this. You know, uh, coming to CMC, the other thing we are working on currently is also to improve the stability of our nanoparticles, right? You know, people are working on very different strategies in order to come up with something that's uh, likely to be stable either at four degrees Celsius or maybe even at room temperature if possible. Um, so that's another, you know, uh, aspect, you know, people in CMC are working on. We have got time, so maybe at this point I'll take a pause and actually open it to the floor if anyone has a question for, for any of our panelists. <laughs> so maybe I can take a stab, and I'm sure. I mean, we wanted to keep this discussion focused on the leading non-viral delivery platform, which is the lipid nanoparticle. But that's absolutely not assuming that LNP solves all delivery challenges. You're absolutely right. There's huge amount of work happening in viral vectors, even beyond AVs, which have huge potential, especially for CNS delivery and, and you know delivery to other tissues as well because of higher tropism. There's a lot of work happening on virus like particles, VLPs, other nanoparticles, what have you. And I agree. I think LMPs are absolutely a great, fascinating platform, but they don't solve the delivery challenges for every every area. I mean, uh, there are gold. I, I will say, first off, I really believe in diversity and uh, liberate. We're interested in polymeric nanoparticles as well. But to give you a few reasons, safer, easier to produce, larger cargoes all necessary for gene editing. If I can use that versatility of complex in one place. Bring it on. Then we switch. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, I'm really, I am excited to see what the next big, you know, sea change is. You know, I, I don't think that LNPs are the ultimate answer. Um, I have not seen the next big answer yet, and I'm excited to see tolerability and efficacy drastically improved by whatever the next carrier is. We have one more question. So following up on the uh, LNP and, uh, and uh, safety, stability, but uh, we didn't discuss safety, and I know this platform really is kind of proof because of vaccination and, and all this technology which really 
proves to be very well working. But if you are talking about therapeutics areas, you need much more to deliver. And I am wondering, are we doing anything to mitigate this or understand this better? And what is your opinion about it? Maybe I can take a stab. You're absolutely right. When you look at gene editing applications, the amount of mRNA or the cargo that needs to be delivered is significantly higher. And there are ways around that because unlike vaccines which are given intramuscularly or sub-Q, here you're giving an IV infusion that goes to the liver. And the, you're wanting the mRNA to express that gene editing technology for a very brief amount of time, and then it's, then it's gone. It's degraded within hours, basically, right? But it's not an IM injection, it's an IV infusion. So it has the ability to dose significantly higher from a dosing point of view. I mean, I think the safety concern also, I mean, keeping in mind LNPs generate an immune response, which if you're trying to make a vaccination is helpful. It's an adjuvant, really. But for these editing approaches, you're going to want to minimize that. And I think this goes back to the earlier point about specificity. And if you can drive a 10, 100, or a 10,000-fold increase in expression or edit and deliver a much lower dose to manage some of those immune responses, it's, it's going to be benefit, beneficial to the patients for sure. Uh, probably that's where the next LNP would be, is a much more potent and much more efficient system. And with that, we are on time. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And thank you so much for the fellow panelists. Thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Pod Conference editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit podconference.com. Thanks for listening. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.